about history Don't know much biology Don't know much about a science book Don't know much about the French I took But I do know that I love you And I know that if you love Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, today we are, it is a Thursday. Yes, and which we don't usually record on We Thursday. don't. Uh, I'm going to be in New York going on. You're going to Friday. New York. Book Expo. I've never. Book Expo. Bernie Sanders is speaking tonight at the Book Expo in New York. That's cool. Yeah, but I won't be there, but uh, there you go. Yeah. So, so today's topic. Uh, today's topic is, is your idea. Yeah, faith Without understanding, which is a play on uh, Anselm's faith-seeking understanding, but it's also um, it's also to me something that I'm I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark and one of my four favorite gospels. Uh-huh. And what struck me in this week's passage, I'm, it's the end of chapter six, where it's right after the feeding of five thousand. Um, it's Mark's version of Jesus walking on the water, which is kind of an abridged. It doesn't have a lot of the extra stuff that Matthew and Luke have. And um, they were frightened, and it said there's a kind of a commentary because they did not understand the feeding of the 5,000. And so um, I thought, okay, well, what was it they didn't understand? Because, you know, um, as in the words of Bill Murray in Ghostbusters, if you saw Jesus walking on the water, you would say, now that's something you don't see every day. Exactly. <laughs> But I think it got me to thinking about the fact is that <clears throat> one of the things I think is often problematic, it's problematic, you know, when we deal with our history as Christians as well as our present, how is it that, first of all, Christians can behave so badly? How is it that Christians can um, seem to be very devout and genuine in their faith, yet hold on to um, prejudicial uh, ideas, uh, be caught up in movements that turn out to do great damage to people, whether, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, we can certainly argue about now, but you can go through uh, almost any particular time in history. You can look at, you know, very devout people. Bernard de Clairvaux was not was supported the, the initial crusade. Now, he realized he was wrong, but he was a preacher of the, of the first crusade. Uh, you can talk about the German Christians, uh, you know, supporting the rise of Hitler. You can talk about Christians who not only supported slavery but found biblical justification for it. And certainly, so much is being written now about. You can talk about the Christians that are, do that ultimate fighting, Christian ultimate fighting. <laughs> Those I just, tours. I just think that's just silly. <laughs> it's funny. And perhaps entertaining. So, how is it that? And for me, I got to thinking. You know, in the Mark passage, um, a miracle or healings, um, the faith that maybe encounters that and experiences those powerful things. And, you know, we've said before, there is nothing more miraculous, I think, than someone who once was lost is now found. But how can it be that someone can experience something so powerful uh, and then seem to not be able to translate that to any kind of deeper understanding? How can they be experientially right when it comes to God and so theologically wrong? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting example that you bring up in Mark, too, right? Because what what did they not understand? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really tell you what they don't understand, and I think that's that's kind of 
That's worth. What do you think they don't understand? Well, you know, that's a, that's a couple. I guess maybe they don't totally understand who Jesus is or what he's capable of. You know, you want to say, you don't want to jump out there and say, well, they didn't understand that Jesus can take care of them because everyone in that boat ended up dead because of Jesus one way or the other down the road. But maybe they didn't understand, I think, what Mark's implying in the whole, you know, trajectory of Mark's theology is they didn't understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. Even in chapter 8, when they say that Jesus is the Messiah, they still don't get it. So I think in Mark's program, they just don't understand who it is they're actually with. Yeah, and maybe is there something like here, you have the feeding, the shepherd feeding, you know, the, the sort of shepherd king. To, like, there is a sort of new moses feeling, right? And there's like, like... Well, there's certainly, you know, Mark's gospel. I mean, Jesus even has him, you know, getting companies of 50. So Exactly, right. So he, there's part of Jesus that plays into the Messianic expectation right. there. But, um, and I argued, I think when we talked about this before, that I think Jesus, and I, you know, I said, put this on a Facebook post from a sermon, got a lot of, lot of interaction. But, you know, Jesus, you know, in some levels, willingly miscal- or willingly plays into their wrong expectation about the Messiah because they were hungry. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because Capon thinks there's a transition from the par- what he calls the parables of the kingdom. And after the par- the feeding of the 5,000, roughly, you get what he calls the parables of grace. And he says the parables of the kingdom, are, the kingdom is always, it's Catholic, it's unexpected and, and strangely right. present. Right. And he goes into these pa- parables of grace, which are often death and resurrection stories. But he says, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, would say, it's the last time Jesus looked like a traditional Messiah. That you could, that he could, right. he could look like. But then the other thing is, if there's a sort of feeding, like miraculous feeding, and if if there's a sense in which he's fulfilling Old Testament roles and transcending them, it's like if he's this mosaic figure that can feed the people in the wilderness. Sure, and if Moses can get through the Red Sea, surely the new Moses can manage the Sea of Galilee, right? <laughs> like maybe there's, maybe there's a kind of, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a kind of thing that not understanding the sort of place they are in the redemptive story or something. I don't yeah, know. Well, and it's kind of just, it's an open-ended thing. And, um, you know, in one level, we can be sympathetic there, but they don't understand what's going on. You know, because if we were there, we wouldn't. Matter of fact... Uh, well, because you and I are still struggling to understand was, what they didn't understand. I was going to say, you know, I, every time <laughs> you better I... better understand it before Sunday. <laughs> every time I look at Facebook, I'm reminded that there's a lot of faith without understanding. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> there's a lot of just, uh, lots of stuff without understanding. Lots, lots of stuff without understanding. So, what is, what is, um, I mean, again, when, when, uh, when I threw out this topic, what, what did Maybe you... they were on Ambien. <laughs> no. That doesn't. That just makes you a racist. That just that makes you a racist. Doesn't make you stupid. And by the way, we're referring to Roseanne Barr. Said that you know she made this racist comment because she was on Ambien, and to which the people that make Ambien said, "Look, we know there's many side effects like with any drug, but one of them is not racism." Right. <laughs> I just like imagine like, oh, this morning I was marching with civil rights activists. I took an Ambien to wind down. I woke up and. Damn, I was I was on my neighbor's black neighbor's lawn burning crosses. It's the strangest there, thing. There is an old there's a movie from I got the early seventies called Watermelon Man, where a white racist wakes up black. Oh, and, nice. Yeah, that's uh, that could happen. That could happen. It, it doesn't seem to happen in reverse though. No. Yeah. So so when I throw out this idea of faith without understanding, what what did, what have you thought of since the, we talked about this on the phone? Well, yeah, I think that it's interesting that I was thinking a couple of things. So. You know, there's always paganism is always some form of natural theology, right? It's always some form of what see, like, constructing divine 
you know, constructing our image of God and and ultimate reality around traditional kind of human sensibility and convention, right? Now, sometimes that's incredibly philosophically sophisticated. Sometimes it's it's populist, you know, kind of folk stuff, you know. And I, and I would say, you know, materialistic atheism does the same yeah, thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. sure. So, yeah. so I think that some stuff is just, you know, is is a sort of devolving or evolving, uh, you know, into, uh, you know, this kind of anthropomorphic, you know, the, 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 the faith gets annexed for other projects like, or for other ends or other, so it's really interesting. I'm going to, have James K. Smith on the Give and Take podcast a couple of weeks. So I'm kind of looking over his work and familiarizing myself. And he's, you know, he thinks that 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 most, along with like David Brooks, that most of why we have really bad public policy is because we have this sort of view of people as uh, as a as as primarily thinkers, like as primarily like thinking beings, rational animals. Mm-hmm. And really, we're you know, what Brooks says we're social animals, and you know. Basically, Smith would say we're liturgical animals, and by that he thinks we we cr- we craft culture based on what we love. He's cribbing Augustine here, right? And so, I mean, you you know, you are what you love, what you desire, yeah. And so, I think that oftentimes our desires drive, you know, wind up causing faith to get annexed mm-hmm. for things that you know we we really desire, whether that's a populist nationalism or whether it's his, you know the German nationalism, or whether it's it's certain kind of materialism, or whether it's a, a certain kind of accommodate, accommodationist enlightenment thinking, or whatever. The things get accommodate, accommodated to our desires. Yeah, I think it's also you know it's hard work to do thinking. I had uh, I had lunch today with a really bright young pastor uh, who you know bright and young is good. Yeah, yeah. If you can get that, if you can get that, <laughs> if you can get bright and young, that's good. You get it bright, yeah. And uh, one of the things we got, he uh, came from very conservative Christian cultural, Christian cultural uh, context, went to a Christian high school, went to a Christian college. And he was talking a little bit about how he, he had two kind of important events in terms of his issue, you know, thinking about gay and lesbian issues. And he had a friend in high school who grew up in the same kind of context he did. And, um, then he also he said one of the you know, one of the most spiritual and most beautiful souls he ever met in college uh, was was had was living two lives. He was he was gay, but he was in a context in a college where that was. I thought you were so, going to say it was Liberace. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. I met Liberace once in uh, New York. But and what I was impressed with this, and yes, Jeff, this is a shout out to you, uh, was that a person who was and was a religion major at a Christian college. And he went on this quest um, to really kind of how can I think about this issue with what I know, um, with the Bible, with my faith, as well as encountering these things. And um, I think it's it's a maybe we'll have him on on the show sometime and talk about because I think he's done some really interesting work on it. And it came from his own need to reconcile his own theological and Christocentric faith and biblically oriented faith and these realities that were popping up around him. But what struck me about this whole process was it was a lot of work to come up with a way, not just to fall back on maybe what you've always been taught or to fall back on a particular view of Scripture or to say, wow, these are great people, therefore I'm going to jettison what I believe. No, he did the hard work of of really trying to um, place his ideas and his thinking in the context of something 
of a person who seeks to glorify God and, and put Jesus Christ first. What struck me about the process, and again, he had maybe he had more tools than a lot of people did because you know it was his because he's vac- young and he's bright, bright. <laughs> but it was also his vocation, so he had time to do it. But it just reminded me to really have faith with understanding takes a lot. It, it's it's a hard work. I think that's why part of the reason why people don't do it. Now, not that everyone has to do the same kind of work that he did, but it takes work. I mean, you can put anything you want to up on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> you could just spout out all kinds of things and buy, you know, the, the great, uh, you know, this is like uh, Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. You get to say whatever you want to on this corner. I get so nervous now with these Facebook commercials. Like, you know, it was so great. We learned that our <laughs> uncle was an event. That's like when BP runs commercials. We love the environment now. I'm like, oh, wow, we must really be about to get screwed. Remember when South Park did the BP guy it's one of the funniest episodes where the the bp guy just came up and said we're terribly sorry that we killed everything (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of like that i want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question do you like this podcast do you enjoy it do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning afternoon or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald samantha blythe David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So I, I do think, you know, and and again, I think in the American Christian context, American Christianity has never been something that really led with its with its head. I mean, you know, we, we everybody, we love to just fall back on Jonathan Edwards, but... That was about it. <laughs> you know, he, was, he was the last one, you know, but uh, the first and the last one, not quite like that. But we are a, we've always been kind of an experientially driven, um, driven faith. Um, you know, there's all kinds of access to all kinds of ideas out there. And so you pick a teacher or you pick something that feels and resonates with you and you run after him, whether or not you discern or not. Yeah. And yeah, you know, one of the things we were talking about before is that it's interesting that, that, in medieval Christianity, there's all sorts of folk religion and stuff, too, and things devolve and become populist folk religion. But there's the sense in which, you know, this Roman Catholic sense that, uh, that ignorance is, you know, the, the soil of the faith, right? You trust the church, right? So in, in this sort of folk religion, there's not this sense of authority. But what's interesting about American Protestantism with this individualist kind of context is 
the authorities, the sense, the sense that you have, A, that you have to figure everything out, right? You got to have an opinion on everything. It's got to be the right. This is why these four views books for evangelical sell out, sell so. And they publish the damn things like, they're, they'll redo the same topic like every couple of years because people go, well, if there's four views, like, I don't know what the right <laughs> one is. You know what I mean? So you can't, they're just like a gold mine because like it, it, this is sort of part of this American conservative Protestant mindset, right? right and so, yeah. so, so you, you, you come at this like with a sense of authority. I'm wielding, the, I mean, this is like, too, I mean, this is hyperbolic and extreme, but you know, Stanley Harawas's book, Unleashing the Scriptures, you know, the first sentence is, the best thing we can do for um, Christian America is take the Bible out of the hands of North American Christians. <laughs> like, no, again, hyperbolic, a little extreme, but like, you see his point. I mean, like, there can be a kind of, uh, the Bible can be kind of used and abused. Yeah, well, one of the things Aquinas said that the reason that, that God granted church authority was because your average person doesn't have time enough to do all the study um, then that, that, you know, the average person spends, and in his day and age, the average person was from dawn to dusk just making a living. And so one of the things that uh, Aquinas said, that God has given the church authority in order that, you know, the average person doesn't have to be anxious about what's true about the faith. Uh, one of the things about what's going on now is, it doesn't matter to people if they don't have time to actually think through stuff. <laughs> right. No, yeah, right, right, right. It, it, it's, like, it's like I've told this story before. I was listening to one time on the radio, and this uh, high school senior was doing a report on climate change, okay? And somehow, I don't know how it worked out, but they put this high school senior in conversation with a Nobel-winning prize scientist. And the scientist says to the high school girl, well, now, we, we actually, you know, there's a lot of evidence that the climate is warming. It's, there is a change going on. She goes, well, that's just your opinion. <laughs> so, so in her mind, her, uh, high, her, her senior um, science project was equivalent to the opinion of a Nobel laureate. So there we go. And I think that's the spirit of the age. I mean, that, and it's been that way. At some levels, it's been that way theologically in this country for a, for a long time, and it's kind of it's kind of it's in the water. It's always who we've been, but I think it's a great book. By the way, I've had this guy on Give and Take, Tom Nichols, really funny guy, but brilliant guy. But he wrote this great book called The Death of Expertise, yeah. and that's yes, yes. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's it, and it's a nuanced book, but I mean, this is he's getting at this very problem at the yeah. part of the culture. Yeah, and so I mean, part of the thing that I think uh, it's still you know we're called to love God with our mind as well as everything else, and I think that. You know, to truly be um, a faithful disciple is that it does matter that we are faith-seeking understanding. You know, what's powerful about that phrase is that we all we admit from our we admit our we admit our bias right up. That um, you know that we approach the world, um, we approach um, you know almost everything through the eyes of faith. We recognize that you know it's from the base of faith that we seek understanding. But I think what's tragic about whether you're looking at anti-scientist Christians or just anti-scientific people out there, you know, faith-seeking understanding never meant that you had to throw out all other knowledge. In other words, you looked at—that's why this idea that all truth is God's truth, um, it, both, of, both of that matter. You know, it matters that it's a perspective that, you know, as an article of faith, we believe if it's true, it comes from God. But then we don't have to be afraid of truth. I mean, my faith that God is God— allows me not to be afraid of science, doesn't allow me to make me afraid of if psychology has some sort of insight or political science. I'm or still afraid of snakes. Well, you can be afraid of snakes. That's all right. That's all right. 
But uh, I just heard something. We probably should not be afraid of spiders. Those of you who are afraid of spiders. My wife is, well, there's a spider down here that was giant. She was like, I, she's like, there's this giant spider. I was like, yeah, I saw it. She said, you didn't kill it? I said, yeah, I'm like a chamberlain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a combinationist. Well, appeasement. I appeased the spider. And let, if you're in North America, in the northern part of North America, there's a spider in your house. It's probably not poisonous. It's probably doing some work for you. Probably helping you out. Probably okay. helping you out. So, now, West Texas, that's a different thing. <laughs> yeah, a lot, it's a lot of creatures in West Texas can do dar- damage to you. Yeah, It's interesting because Leslie Newbegin's Gospel Report Society, and he, he writes about this stuff other places, but he talks about how, like, in our culture... The word dogmatic is like an insult, but he's like, really, a dogma is just a belief you're not doubting right now. And you need dogmas to doubt. He's right. like, he's like, basically, you know, you can't, like a concert pianist can't think about their finger work and play a concerto at the same time. Like they can think about their practice or they can play it, you know, and same like, you know, you can't think about the mechanics or golf swing and hit the golf ball at the same time. You're kind of, you can be critical and reflective or you can do it. And same, same thing. So, you know, you can't, well, the one thing is, you can doubt any of your dogmas, but you can't use the dogma and doubt it at the same time. Right. You know, and so that's part. But then he says, you know, everybody is like this. I mean, whether you're a person of faith or not. I mean, I think most Americans think that our approach to the, qual- the quality of men and women and how women should be treated is better than Saudi Arabia's. And we don't think that's arbitrary. But yet... There's, there's no metaphysical... Unless you're at certain Southern Baptist exactly, Right, sorry, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, there's no empirical metaphysical guarantor of that. Right. It's something that you, you, that you believe, and even believe reasonably, but it, it, but it is something that, that is not indubitable, because lots of people in the world don't believe. So, the, I mean, oftentimes we don't realize just how much all of life... You know, Newbigin has this great phrase uh, in, in Gospel and Employable Societies, that we, f- we forget the fiduciary framework of all knowledge. And so basically, you don't walk into physics and say, well, I'm not going to uh, f- believe anything in this textbook till I do all the experiments. But No, there's a f- right. fiduciary place. No, again, you can be critical, but ultimately, it has to start with faith to right. even to know anything. Because right. you have to trust that t- tradition has been a reliable repository of what's come before. Right. And I do think, uh, to me, I think part of having the power of the keys of the kingdom is that you can engage critically with that tradition. You can ask questions, is this something that needs to be reevaluated? But you do that from a position of faith-seeking understanding. Yes. And I think that's the operative thing. And I think it's something, you know, one of the things, I had a, I had a, another conversation with another bright young Christian leader. Boy, you're finding them all. I'm finding them all, um, Tracy. And, you know, one of the things she and I were talking about uh, a couple of weeks ago was a particular issue and, you know, that her and both of our views had changed on this issue. But, and there was an opportunity, she said, for her to vote on it. And she said, when I voted on it, I said a prayer, Lord, forgive me if I'm wrong about this. And I think that humility is something else that's lacking. Because I think faith-seeking understanding, one of the articles of faith is realizing that we see through a glass dimly. And I think that's, I think the beginning of wisdom, beginning of understanding, um, and that's part of part of being humble. A good theologian is a humble theologian. I think Dr. Daryl Guter, he's the first person I heard say say that, and he was he is your advisor. Amen to that. And as Schleiermacher said, the essence of faith can't be knowing though, because if that was true, then theologians would be the best Christians, and everyone knows that's yeah. not true. Yeah. But but being stupid doesn't make you a good Christian. It does. Either. Yeah, that's like that with that person who wrote John <laughs> John Wesley. 
uh, Reverend Wesley, uh, Doctor, uh, uh, the the you know, Holy Spirit has no need of all your book knowledge, and 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 Wesley ran back. You're absolutely right. He also has no need of your ignorance. <laughs> I think that's a good word to end on. <laughs> all right, all right. Take care, everybody. May God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. May you build a ladder to the stars and climb on every rock. And may you stay forever young. May you stay. Stand upright and be strong And may you stay forever young May you stay forever young May your hands always be busy May your feet always be swift When the winds of changes shift May your heart always be joyful May your song always be sung And may you stay forever young